Welcome, my friends, to the Bob and Brad podcast, produced by Bob and Brad, the two most famous physical therapists on the internet. I am Bob, and I'm exactly one half of the Bob and Brad team. And today, my return guest is Cynthia. She's a physician's assistant with Summit Orthopedics, uh, where a place up in the Twin Cities, actually, they have multiple locations in Minneapolis and St. Paul. And today we're going to talk about, well, we got three subjects where we're really going to talk about. And one is whiplash. The second is cervicogenic headaches, which is neck headaches. And the third is just, you know, regular all overall neck pain. And uh, hopefully we can get you some solutions if you have any one of those three. So join us for, for the program. Welcome back to the program, Cynthia PAC, who was last time coupled up with Dr. Ekstrom, but this time she's going solo. Flying solo. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for taking the time and uh, being with us. Today Thank we're, you. We're going to talk about mainly neck problems to the layperson, but um, uh, whiplash, uh, cervicogenic migraines, and just cervical pain. So yeah those three categories. So before we do that, though, would you give a just a brief overview of who you are? Yeah, so <laughs> I'm Cynthia. Uh, like you said, I'm a physician assistant. As of right now, I'm working at Summit Orthopedics. Um, and I mainly work um, in spine care. So Dr. Ekstrom, sure. who you guys met on the last video, he's a PM&R doctor. So um, physical medicine and rehab. Yeah, right. Yep. And so we focus a lot on neck and neck and back pain, but of course, summit, you know, orthopedics covers a whole range of orthopedic conditions. How long have you been there, Cynthia? So it'll be coming up on three years that I've been there. And I've, I've been with Dr. Ekstrom the whole time that I've been at summit. Now you have, um, they have multiple locations up in the Twin Cities, which is Minneapolis and St. Paul area, yeah. correct? A lot, a lot of the suburbs. And uh, what is the philosophy of uh, Summit Orthopedics? I mean, if, I, if you were to summarize how they approach patients. Yeah, so a lot of it is based on a, a team approach. So we have the physician and they select their their team from the patient coordinator to an advanced practitioner, so a PA or a nurse practitioner. And it's really kind of getting that whole team on board to make sure we're not missing certain links in the patient care from, from diagnosis to getting some type of intervention or, or surgery done. And okay. I think the main point of, of summit is kind of a, a get to yes philosophy. If a, a patient needs something or, or wants something, we find a way to, to get to yes for them. And I'm going to assume that the uh, goal is not to get to surgery if possible. Right. <laughs> right. That is definitely the goal unless, you know, surgery is needed, but ideally if we can do our our best to keep people away. We love our surgeons, but sure. if we can keep them away from them. Right, right. Nice. Yeah. And I imagine, uh, and we'll go over this today, but uh, I think you guys, I assume you have a lot of tools in your toolkit to try and see what's going to work and hopefully uh, get people back to a, a pain-free life. Yep. We definitely have a, a lot of tools and 
you know, you and, and Brad come into play with therapy is probably one of, you know, our, our biggest tools we have to offer can go a, a long way. Um, but yep, from in, injections and, and therapy, medications, sure. to keep them away from surgery if we can. Awesome. Well, the first topic we're going to talk about today is whiplash. And I'm excited about this because I have not seen a lot of whiplash patients. So okay. yeah. I, I, I've done some research on it in the past and I've, you know, I've, I've kind of run into it once in a while. I'd get a occasional patient, but I, mm-hmm. it wasn't like, I don't know. Do you tend to get a lot of whiplash patients? We do get a lot of whiplash patients. Um, and it depends on when we see them. There are some patients that we'll see in kind of that uh, acute phase of, of whiplash within a couple of weeks of a motor vehicle accident. And there's some people that we will see years past an accident that are still having symptoms. Oh boy. Well, that answers kind of the one question, how long does it last? But so it can last a long time <laughs> if it's not taken care of. Um, yep. Well, I'm going to ask a question, not on the sheet here, but um, so what is the uh, current philosophy about neck braces, right? You know, the acute, during the acute phase. Yeah. So a lot of the times with bracing, um, sometimes people will brace more so for, for comfort, Right. but what comes into play with bracing is, is deconditioning the muscles too. Um, you really need some of those muscles that aren't injured to be kind of recruited in supporting the spine. So if there's not really any, uh, fracture or any, you know, bony abnormality that would call for bracing, uh, we don't really brace patients. And that fits right along with the philosophy of what I saw in the research there. Yeah. You guys are right on mark. (laughs) So one um, down, <laughs> one down. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so let's cause, let's talk about the cause of whiplash or common causes of whiplash. Yeah. So the most common cause that, that people think of is going to be a motor vehicle accident, sure. um, generally a, a rear ended collision, but it can, whiplash can really come from any type of trauma. So contact sports, you know, football injury, oh, sure. Um, falls from a ladder, falls from horseback riding, um, even anything, you know, such as someone on a construction work site and something falling onto them. Oh, sure. So you can get the same type of, of mechanism of injury without, with or without that, that whip mechanism that you think of. Gotcha. So are, are there, uh, certain parts of the population that are more susceptible to the whiplash injury? I mean, let's say if a large head and a small neck or (laughs) those classic large head and and I I run into them all the time. Yeah, I know. They're always on the streets. (laughs) Um, definitely. I mean, with out getting, I guess, too in depth in, in sort of the biomechanics of it, but yeah, definitely a small neck and a, a large head. I mean, sure. you're in terms of age, I mean, the, the oh, elderly sure. is probably Makes more susceptible sense. to long-term injury, uh, from whiplash injury, just because of the degenerative changes that their spine already has. Gotcha. Um, 
women tend to be a little more susceptible or, or predisposed to long-term effects of whiplash injury, just because our, our neck musculature is not that of a male's sure. sometimes. I know someone's going to flag me for sexism here. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, the, the younger you are, people think you tend to bounce back better from injury, but there's also underlying, um, kind of congenital abnormalities in the spine that would predispose someone to, uh, worse injury with whiplash. Yeah. It's funny. And as I get older, it's interesting from, I'd say from age 40 to, and I'm above my sixties, um, that my neck has gotten smaller, you know, <laughs> collar and obviously not as strong, you know, so yeah. not as well protected. So what are our common symptoms of whiplash? What, what, what do people describe? Um, definitely neck stiffness. Um, a lot of the times the, the neck stiffness is going to start kind of at the base of the skull for most people. A lot of the times kind of radiate out through, radiate out through that trapezius muscle. Um, a lot of people describe it as sort of a coat hanger distribution. If you were to take a coat hanger and put it on the back, it runs right along oh, that. Yeah, sure. Um, headaches are, are definitely going to be a common symptom. And then sometimes people can get blurry vision, difficulty with concentrating, and sometimes even pain, numbness, tingling that will go into the arms or, or fingers. You know, you quite do uh, you hear this quite often. I don't know if you see this quite often uh, that the symptoms or effects can be delayed, like it happened today, but you don't feel anything for a week, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. You find yeah, that that's true? definitely true. It is. I think the majority of people at, I'd say maybe three days or so, are going to be when they start to notice a lot of that stiffness. Gotcha. I think one of the, one of the reasons is you, after an accident, any type of trauma, again, right. whether it's a motor vehicle accident or you fall off a ladder, there's some degree of adrenaline right. that going to produce. Understood. And that's going to definitely mask the, the symptoms that you are having. And then the other part of it too, is once in, inflammatory, you know, mediators are released in the the body, it takes some time for your body to um, really signal what's going on. Right after whiplash injury, we talked about the bracing or not bracing. Uh, what activities should you avoid? Definitely any anything that that mimics the type of trauma you were in. And I I think for most people that would go without saying that's probably the last thing that they want to do. So avoiding contact sports avoiding any aggressive movement. So a heavy lifting, um, exercising, things like that. It's really kind of a time for, for rest and healing for the muscles. What I would tell most people is to not freeze yourself. Sure. Um, you can, I guess, freeze yourself with using some ice and things like that, but uh -huh. don't just stop completely moving. Um, it, it's kind of more gentle, gentle movements that are going to be best. 
Right. Hopefully movements that don't irritate it too much, I assume. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I take it, I'm assuming in most whiplash injuries, you, you should see a physician. I mean, uh, I, will, I wouldn't try to treat this on your own. Yeah. And that's the hard thing because there, there's a lot of people that say, oh, you, you just got whiplash injury. It's just a muscle strain. You'll be fine. And then we see them six months to a year down the road and they're still not getting better. I, I think if you're able to afford, you know, I know healthcare these days is expensive. If you're able to, to get in and get evaluated the, the sooner, the better really. Yeah. Because uh, I mean, there also could be semi-serious injuries. There could be a fracture Mm -hmm. uh, and there could be a disc problem and uh, who knows what else, but so I think you do want to rule those things out, but so what treatment protocol, if you want to maybe call, take a typical patient comes in, if there's a typical patient, uh, what, what, how do you approach that type of patient? What treatment do you start with and what do you maybe progress to? Yeah. So I would love if there was such thing as a typical patient. <laughs> no <kidding>. So nice. <laughs> Classical. Uh, yes. But really if, it, it depends the extent of the injury. So, you know, they say you can even get a whiplash injury between five and 10 miles per hour. If it's a, oh, wow. if it's a significant um, fall or motor vehicle accident, you know, we'll usually want to get some x-rays, make sure there is no fracture, fracture dislocation, anything like that, um, that would warrant more urgent care. And a lot of the times it's going to be dependent on when they're presenting. So if it's within that first couple weeks or kind of that acute phase, you know, x-rays and maybe starting them in some type of, of therapy or rehab program is going to kind of be key. Um, anti-inflammatories, ice, um, sometimes alternating with heat, those more kind of conservative care options. Sure. If it's at the chronic phase now, and so they're they're months past the incident and they're still having symptoms, a lot of the times we'll jump right for advanced imaging. So MRI or or, or a CT. What might you see on that? I mean, what might be the problems that are causing this chronic pain? Yes. So, and that's kind of an interesting question because sometimes injury to, to joints or the facet joints in the cervical spine don't necessarily show up on advanced imaging, but things that we can see that might be the problem would be a a disc herniation causing, you know, a nerve to get pinched. Um, sometimes inflammation in those joints or inflammation in some of the ligaments or soft tissues, we might be able to see depending on you know, again, how far out they are from their accident. Uh, what is it maybe from a, a medicine standpoint, what might you start with? Uh, from medicine standpoint, we always start with over the counter medications. So very, very good. Yep. Um, anti-inflammatories. So anything in that kind of ibuprofen family, Aleve, um, ibuprofen, also Advil, um, and then Tylenol. Do you uh, try a, a 
a short-lived bump up of the anti-inflammatory. Like I sometimes see the, the doctor recommend, you know, like a 600 milligrams for three days or, you know, just a short time. And then they'll, you know, take it back down again. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll definitely sometimes do maybe a seven day, um, sometimes even a 14 day course of like a higher dose of naproxen, right. um, which is also a leave. And a lot of the times, yeah, we don't want them to continue on that higher dose for an extended period of time, but sometimes we'll do that and, and then just even take it away completely, just kind of give them the bump. If we do any prescription medication, we'll take an anti-inflammatory approach and sometimes do a steroid oh, um, sure. and very similar, the steroid for, you know, five, six days kind of decrease the inflammation, get people moving a little better. Gotcha. And uh, yeah, they could maybe start functioning. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. When do you start physical therapy then usually? And uh, what does the physical therapist start with? Yeah. So generally um, what we've seen physical therapists start with is going to be kind of um, more passive range of motion. Um, and then a lot of uh, soft tissue work. So, um, myofascial release. So trigger points or muscle knots, things like that. It really depends on, you know, how sensitive the, the patient is and everybody is so different in terms of what they can or can't tolerate. But I would right. say a lot of the times, and I don't know from your experience, a lot of the times we see more of that passive range of motion, um, and kind of, uh, setting up good posture again, getting the correct curve of this, of the spine back and things like that to prevent future injury. Always important posture, isn't it? Always uh, important. As I'm, as I'm currently. I'm trying to work on it myself. I know. Uh, but when you say passive, just for the audience, because they mean oh, yeah. passive range of motion, if you would describe it. Um, yeah. So, so passive range of motion is, is basically moving, having someone else move a body part for you. So instead of having you as the therapist, having me, you know, turn my neck, you'll turn my neck for me, find kind of my limitations or deficiencies there. And, um, and, you know, not necessarily adding weights or anything like that. Sure. Right, right. So the next step would probably be active range of motion where the patient performs the motion themselves. Yep. And then on to, you know, and then once the, the pain is decreased, the range of motion is improved. Um, next step would be adding some of those strengthening exercises, um, to, to sort of reinforce, reteach your, your muscles, what they should be doing. So, uh, are you able to describe some of those strengthening exercises or are they, are they isometric or isotonic or yeah, a lot of the times uh, isometric exercises can be really beneficial um, in not only just post whiplash injury, but a, a lot of other injuries too, especially even thinking of the, the low back doing isometric um, planks, such as for core strength versus doing, you know, crunches and everything that would necessarily put more strain on the spine um, for 
for cervical, for whiplash injury, you know, some isometric injury or some isometric exercises would be, so you're, you're trying to contract a, a muscle basically without moving it. Right. Um, and so for the neck, such as if you, you kind of place your hand on your, your head and you try to push your head back and really what you're doing with your, your neck muscles is trying to resist yourself pushing. So you're contracting those muscles and those can be really helpful because then you avoid kind of wrong, wrong movements of the necks and overuse of the muscles too. And you're getting a nice symmetric use of that muscle. And would you go in all directions or is it mainly the anterior, the musculature in the front that's been damaged and that's the one that we want to strengthen or, or do you go work on the back and side and. Yeah. So I would, I would definitely go in, in all directions. I mean, the human body symmetry is, is key. And one of the, and one of the biggest things is having that true evaluation with a therapist sure. because they can really see, you know, maybe your injury is on one side more than another. Maybe you're deficient on one side more than another. Um, and sometimes, you know, you might have to strengthen one side more than the other. And, and just having that evaluation is so beneficial. Yeah. It's interesting. Uh, uh, Stuart Bigel, I actually mentioned him last time. He, he's a physician out of, uh, a doctor out of, um, Ontario, Canada, I believe. Oh, yeah. And the way he recommends strengthening is you take your two fists, you put it underneath your chin, you take your tongue and put it to the roof of your mouth, and you tighten up the muscles in the front, and then mm -hmm. you push up with your your fists, but don't allow you know the chin to be moved up. Mm -hmm. So, and that is supposed to strengthen the neck muscles without sheer force on, huh. on, the, on the vertebrae. And he studies everything and he yeah. has several textbooks. So I thought that it was interesting. That is interesting. So let's say um, someone gets to, uh, you're just not getting better with somebody. Are there some other options? I mean, they're, if their whiplash is just not getting better, is it maybe more injections or what are we looking at at that, at that point? There are a plethora of options um, from, I mean, mainly from our standpoint, mainly injections um, that would supplement, you know, physical therapy, but the injections can go anywhere from very conservative. So doing something like trigger point injections, which sure. would be, you know, attacking what people know is kind of muscle knots um, all the way up to you know, a little more invasive injections, like steroid injections for the neck, um, sometimes, and we can even get into this a little more in depth, but radiofrequency neurotomy. So heating up or ablating nerves that supply some of the joints that may have been damaged in the neck. Sure. I mean, that's what it's nice to know that there's, I mean, you go through the uh, normal routine and if it's not working, there are other options. So yep. uh, uh, when you say injections, are those guided by x-ray or imaging or are you just shooting for the joint or how does that work? 
Yeah, we just shoot for the stars, man. No, I'm just <laughs> no. Um, trigger trigger point injections or things like occipital nerve blocks. Those are are usually blinded or done on palpation, so finding gotcha. the right landmarks. Um, all of the the spinal based injections. So yes, the radio frequency epidural injections. Those are all guided with X ray, and then um, they use fluoroscopy, which is just basically putting some, some dye and you can see it on the x-ray. It shows kind of a confirmation of, of where they are anatomically. Good. Yeah. Uh, so with the radio frequency, is that what done with the probe too? Yep. It is. Okay. Yep. So you actually are going into the, into the joint itself. Well, they do, they do it with, well, it's considered a, an RF needle or a radio frequency needle. So they oh, set God. it, they're actually setting it right on top of the joint where a subset of nerves or the medial branches sit and they kind of sit on top of the joint and, and they're the main source of pain, pain. essentially right. pain sensation to that joint. I know when we were talking about um, the intracept. Yep. Technique that they actually go through the pedicle. And I mean, they're staying away from the nerve roots and stuff. They're not yeah. even close to those, I take it. Co uh, correct. Yep. And yeah, for the intercept procedure, we're, we're basically getting into that larger vertebral body. Um, and right. then for this type of radio frequency, we're staying on the, the outside of that joint. So gotcha. we're not actually going into the bone. Gotcha. Okay. Um, is there any time that it proceeds to surgery? Yes. Um, if there's some type of radicular symptom, so nerve pain going into the, the upper extremities um, and some type of deficit, so weakness and, and things that aren't getting better with therapy, or if we've tried injections, you know, those are people that we will get off to our surgeons. And sometimes, honestly, it's nice to just have a surgical opinion sometimes sure. just during treatment so that patients know if you're not getting better, this is potentially what we're, we're looking at. I know it's off the top of your head, but percentage wise, people that end up being that far along, um, do you have a number or a percentage? I mean, is it 10%? Is it 5%, 1%, 20%? say maybe, I guess out of, out of people I've seen, I I'd say maybe 10, 15%. Okay. Yeah. Especially if a disc is involved or. Yeah. Well, and that's the hard thing too, is it, it depends what, what their spine looked like be, before maybe this incident. So maybe they already had cervical stenosis or, or narrowing around that spinal cord. And then they have the, the incident and it's much more narrowed. And now they're at risk for a spinal cord injury. So, you know, getting them off to surgery in that case would be more sure. prompt than, you know, someone else. Now I got to imagine that osteoporosis plays a large role in this too. I mean, mm -hmm. Well, do you have anything else on whiplash that we should cover? I think one of the important things to point out about whiplash injury is let's say you're a 35 year old male, you had a motor vehicle accident, 
a year ago, you're still having pain, you've done chiropractic care, physical therapy, um, and it's just not getting better. And let's say we do an MRI and we get the results back and they are pristine. <laughs> and, you know, patients get really frustrated because they get the results, you know, in their right. my chart and they read it and it yes. says unremarkable, normal exam. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean that those joints in the spine aren't playing a significant role in your pain because there are microscopic changes to that joint capsule that aren't necessarily imageable. Um, so I tell people, you know, don't get discouraged or depending on who ordered them MRI, if they come back to you and say, uh, there's nothing we can do, it's normal. Um, there's definitely more that can be looked into. Yes, there's always hope. There's always hope. Yes. I think with whiplash, I, I would like to just ask, you know, do you have, what do you, is there a, a certain treatment they feel has been the most successful for you? A treatment that has been the, the most successful in your whiplash patients? I mean, do you feel like this is the one go-to thing we always go to or? There is a lot of variety. I would say the main treatment that is an intervention would be that radio frequency neurotomy or the treatment at oh, those good. cassette joints. That would probably be the most common treatment for whiplash injury that is not necessarily involving, you know, a disc herniation or, or, or a fracture. Sure. No, that's awesome. I, uh, I was hoping for a response like that yeah. because I wasn't aware of that and um, what a nice option for people, you know. Yeah. Yep, definitely. So how does a cervicogenic headache present itself? So I think cervicogenic headaches or cervicogenic migraines or neck headache, yeah, whatever you want to call them, I think they are so interesting because there is such a crossover between these type of, of headaches and migraine headaches. Um, so usually how they present themselves is there's some type of degree of, of neck pain. So cervical, meaning the cervical spine, um, something, something going on in the neck and, you know, whether it, someone perceives it as a deep neck pain, someone perceives it as a, a muscular tension, it's all going to vary on the person. A lot of the times we'll see headaches that will kind of sit in this occipital region. So the base of the head and sometimes, you know, behind the ear or behind the eye for a lot of people, um, or the jaw kind of in a, a trigeminal nerve pattern. Often one-sided or? So it can be, both. it can be both. Yep. And, and that's where that kind of blurry line between migraines and cervicogenic headaches come in because migraines were always thought of unilateral one-sided, um, but migraines can also present as both and cervicogenic headaches can be one-sided or both. Sure. In fact, I think they called it like ram's horns. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't, I can just imagine you should get a tattoo. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> like a Mike Tyson type thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> but so um, these headaches, anything else that accompanies them? I mean, do, do you get the aura? Do you get... I'm nauseated. Do you get, you know, what, what are some other things you might see along with these headaches? So cervicogenic headaches 
in general or in most studies say that there's not really an, an aura that accompanies them. However, some of the other kind of migraine features definitely can pop up in these cervicogenic headaches. So um, nausea, vomiting, photophobia and phonophobia. So sensitivity to light, sensitivity really? to sound. You'll, a lot of these people, you know, and I, I, I suffer from headaches too. So a lot of these people are in the bed, lights off, um, you know, hoodie on covering their ears because everything is just hypersensitive. Gotcha. So, um, yes, I had Steve August. He's a, a therapist from Australia, New Zealand. On, and he was talking about the same headaches and he was saying they, you know, injected the joints with a chemical that would uh, irritate the joint, basically. And oh, like a, pro, like a prolo therapy? Yeah. Almost. Well, it was a, it, they wanted it for uh, research. They wanted to see what, oh, what, okay. crea what created the pain. So okay. That, and, and it did create that pain going around. I always thought it was the greater occipital nerve. Um, I don't know what the thoughts are on that now, but he seems to think just, just the joint itself can send pain all the way around like that. Yeah. So th there's kind of an interesting connection between the, the neck and the medial branches we were talking about at that sit at those joints and their connection between the greater occipital nerve. So the third, the third occipital nerve is, is a kind of a superficial medial branch of the, the C2 nerve. And mm -hmm. so that radiates up the back of the head, um, kind of medial to that greater occipital nerve. But the greater occipital nerve also comes off branches of, of the, the C2 and, you know, some innervation from the C3. So they are all very interconnected. And so sometimes aggravating those joints or even isolating those joints can take care of that same type of pain because of the connections that those nerves have. Well, why don't we talk about that? What do you think some of the main causes are of cervicogenic headaches? So um, going back to kind of the first thing we were talking about, whiplash. Whiplash is definitely a sure. big contributor to cervicogenic headaches. Um, posturing. So sometimes cervicogenic headaches, there might not be a structure or finding in the cervical spine, like a disc herniation or arthritis, and it might just be muscular posturing, poor posture, yeah. um, kind of tugging. I, I, I tell people a lot of times, sort of your, your head and your neck are playing a, a tug of war and it's locally irritating some of these nerves, like the greater occipital nerve, um, the suboccipital nerve. And so those can get irritated too and, and cause, uh, but other things like uh, disc herniations, you know, underlying pathology that can short, sort of trigger this cascade of, of issues up and to the muscles too, um, can cause these headaches. I mean, have you seen, I mean, overall, well, you've been three years. I don't know if that's a good uh, period of time to judge this, but I mean, have you seen a, a drastic increase in these type of cases? Because this therapist had, he had, yeah, like it, it was, you know, a tsunami is what he called it. <laughs> I, um, I actually, 
feel that kind of since the COVID pandemic started and a lot of people have been working from home, their, their setup is much different than it's been at work and the ergonomics are different. And uh -huh. so I've seen a lot of, a lot more people present with an onset of these headaches over the past couple of years with no, you know, no trauma, no injury, just a change in their, their ergonomics. And, um, we're not going out as much. We're on our phones a lot more. And so not you know, that much. is, yep. Stressors, yeah. you know, every, this has been stressful right. for, for many people. So I've seen an uptick, I guess, in, in that sense. Um, Makes total and, sense. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think uh, people don't realize, um, well, one thing you just, when you're working at home, you don't have the distractions of, co-workers but right. which is good because you get uh, out of movement but i think people are shocked at at how much pain you can have from just poor posture mm -hmm. it's just shocking what what you know they're like something must be really wrong i for, yeah well and i know so many people have had those mornings even when they they've slept wrong and they wake up and they're like i can't move my neck something right. no i gotta go to the er which you know, I'm not blaming anyone. A lot of the times, you know, it's scary to, to not be able to move your neck, yes, but yes. yeah, posture can, can play a big role, especially if it's not, you know, corrected early. And you probably seen that a lot from a therapy standpoint, it's right. like pulling teeth if it's a chronic. And it gets to the point where it's very hard to correct. I mean, mm -hmm. So, um, well, why don't we talk about some of the treatments again? I know that you're going to have different types of patients and a whole span from, um, less serious to more complicated, but what are some of the treatments you might try for somebody with uh, silvergogenic headaches? Yeah. So from a, you know, from a medication standpoint, sometimes there's different medications we can um, use other than, than over-the-counter medications. Some of the issues too, you know, going with migraine and cervical genic headaches is overuse in, in some of these medications. So someone wow. that's taking Excedrin twice a day for, for weeks um, can actually cause kind of a cascade of, of more headaches. So really? We try to kind of sparingly use medications, but a, a lot of the times there are different medications, different muscle relaxers, some antidepressants and, and things that can be helpful in preventing some of these headaches if they're, if they're chronic and even almost daily. Um, therapy, we rely on therapy heavily to do um, a lot of posturing, repositioning, uh, retraining muscles, working on that trigger point. Like I was talking about the, that myofascial release. So trying to get rid of those maybe muscle knots for people that are referring pain to the head or, or the shoulder blade. Um, dry needling is a technique, you know, that, that therapy can use that has been beneficial. And we can add to that by doing trigger point injections, which is, it's similar to dry needling in a sense that what, what we're trying to do is mechanically kind of get into that muscle knot, um, break it up. And we do use a little bit of an anesthetic to, to help with kind of that pain relief as well. 
And then going a little more further into, I guess, you know, from conservative to, to less conservative would yes. be doing occipital nerve blocks. And that's if, if we think the headaches are, are really coming kind of from a local irritation of those occipital nerves, um, that will use a little bit of anesthetic and some steroid and place it, you know, where that greater and lesser occipital nerve run to kind of decrease the irritation that that nerve is causing. Um, and then sometimes Botox treatment we can use for cervicogenic, what I would categorize as, as cervicogenic migraine. Um, we would use Botox treatment. How long do those last, um, Botox? So Botox is done every three months. Um, and so the there's been studies on you know, having people do Botox for a couple years and then kind of weaning them down. And I think most of the studies I've seen show that it's just better to, to keep the treatment going every three months. There hasn't been any really efficacy to show of, of stopping it. Um, but every, every three months, so it usually lasts three months and then, and then we repeat it. I see. And in the case where you do the anesthetic and steroid, that's kind of a, what, 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 how often could you do that? So if we're using an anesthetic only, so sometimes we can do that in, in nerve blocks or trigger point injections, just an anesthetic. I mean, we could really repeat it every month or so. Um, if there is a steroid, we limit that to usually four times a year, every three months. Um, if you're injecting steroid into that same area. With, you're not in these cases, you're not trying to kill the nerve. Correct. Right, correct. No, we're letting, we're letting it live, <laughs> but we're trying to kind of dampen the response that it's giving or, or the pain signals that it's giving off. I take it the therapist also uh, goes at uh, the approach to therapy ergonomically, try to look at their, hopefully look at their setup and their desk and their, yep. try to, and trying to correct the postures. So, and we do, we've done even recently, you know, again, with the pandemic, we've, we've done a lot of um, work notes for people about getting a sit to stand desk about getting, you know, uh, a proper chair and things that their work might per provide to make their home set up a little more ergonomic for them. Sure. And, and that falls in the lifestyle changes. Uh, are there any yeah. others that you might make? Um, so lifestyle changes, avoid, and it's, it's so hard to say this because I know none of us do this, but avoiding stressors, um, finding some type of outlet. So so exercise and eating healthy, all the things that we all know we should be doing, but right. don't necessarily do. So um, it, with migraines and cervicogenic headaches, I mean, there's kind of an overlap in some triggers. So lack of sleep, again, poor posture, um, sometimes, you know, intake of, of too much sodium, sugar, all of that can definitely lead to an increase in some of these headaches. Oh, interesting. Do you, um, do you have a nutritionist, nutritionist on staff or, or not? We don't, I would, 
I would love to, I guess it's not up to me. I don't, sure, <laughs> I don't own sure. Summit, um, but we don't. There are definitely, um, especially in the Maple Grove area here, there's a couple of chiropractic clinics that have a nutritionist on staff. I know a lot of grocery stores nowadays will have right, a dietitian right. or a nutritionist, um, which is, is really helpful. Um, very feasible kind of access to, to a nutritionist. Um, so that can be, be helpful too. Yeah. In fact, uh, the girl we have on our program quite often, she used to work for Hy-Vee, the grocery store. Oh yeah. Yep. And so, yeah, she loves nutrition, but she's also a fitness instructor. So, well, uh, anything else that you want to talk about as far as, um, cervicogenic headaches uh, or anything else you want to convey to people or I guess that just that people know there's there's a lot of options out there options, treat yes. headaches there's a lot of causes we don't necessarily treat migraines in the in the absence of some type of neck pathology whether it's just a muscle pathology or a disc or, or joint pathology migraine headaches without any of those would go to neurology for further workup but there is an extensive amount of overlap between types of headaches and there's there's a lot of options for treatment so don't give up very good there's again there's always hope there's always hope oh, oh. That that should be your new your new My slogan. My new tagline, yes. There's always hope. There's always hope. All right, let's go to just plain old if there's such a thing as plain old cervical pain, and that can you know run a wide range from just cervical stiffness all the way up to radiculopathy and you know pain going down the arm. Maybe yeah. let's talk about a little bit about that. Um, what are some of the common things you see in that range? Yeah, so we definitely see all of it, everything from someone presenting, like you said, with a little neck stiffness and someone presenting with pain and, and weakness in the arm. Um, and then we've seen everything, you know, even up to the point of uh, cervical myelopathy. So compression of the, the spinal cord. So weakness, you know, not only in the arms, but into the legs and, right. and issues like that. So we see the whole gamut. Yeah. And that, that'll start affecting your balance and everything. Um, mm -hmm. that's, yep. a, that's a bit of a more serious problem. Yes. So, yes. <laughs> so let me just ask you on, uh, with a cervical disc problem, um, do you have a certain approach to your therapist still use Robin McKenzie type of approach? Do they do traction? Do they, I mean, what's on the table for that? Yeah. So they, they do use, use traction. Um, that's one of the things that generally is in our order for cervical radiculopathy or a disc issue. And it's hard because not everyone really tolerates traction, even right. though, you know, mechanically, you're kind of the pathophysiology of it, you would assume it would, it would work, you're kind of taking pressure off of that right. nerve that's getting pinched. Um, but not everyone tolerates it. So our, our therapists are very good at making sure whatever treatment we prescribe is also going to work for the patient's tolerability. Does it get to the point where you actually have them use the unit at home? Or is it all done in the clinic? 
Yeah, so there's definitely a lot of medical equipment that um, patients will want to obtain at home, and one of them being, you know, a traction unit. Um, there's, you know, the the inflatable traction units. Right. Um, there's the ones over the cheap ones over the door. There's the over the door, and I sometimes I get a little, you know, worried near, when I have a those. seventy year old guy, and he's like, "Yeah, I've been hanging upside down." I'm like. Uh, I don't know about that, right. uh, but other things like tens units, um, you know, those, those are kind of the, the main medical equipment that people will want or theracanes even. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, you, yeah. Yep. Yep. you and Brad are familiar with theracanes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And tense, uh, for our audience is transcutaneous electrical nerve stimulation and, as a form of using nerve impulses to try to help gate the pain or stop the pain. Uh, it, it doesn't uh, cure the pain. It helps right. you the pain, right? I tell people, I always explain it as the, the two sticky pads that tingle. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yep. <laughs> right. Uh, fairly benign, uh, you can yep. use on most people, so. But um, how about as far as, um, what percentage of those people will go on to surgery? Probably, I mean, I'd say maybe close to 20% okay. of people. Yeah, and I'd have to, I mean, in terms of right, the, the span of how long I've been practicing versus, you know, how long Dr. Ekstrom's been practicing, not to say he's old or anything, but um, <laughs> I would definitely, you know, some of those percentages even kind of default to, to him because he might even have a better, you know, idea of, of what he's seen go off to, to surgical colleagues. Are they quite often, uh, well, you probably, maybe this isn't a question for you either, but I mean, is it often um, involved fusion also? Uh, in in the neck, I, I would say a, a majority of surgeries require fusion. In the low back, um, it can really depend, right? Yep. How many how many levels they're attacking? You know, is it central? Is it foraminal? It it really depends. I think the neck for for the most part, from what I know, um, it usually requires uh, fusion. Um, let's take it back again to the start here. How about medication wise? What, what might you start with, with cervical pain? Yeah. So we always, again, always try to start with over the counter. Gotcha. Um, there, you know, studies show that narcotic opioid medication doesn't really trump over the counter medication. Sure. Now that depends on, on the person, of course, and depends on what's going on. A lot of the times that for, for nerve pain or pain shooting down the arm, that radiculopathy we were talking about, um, we'll use some of those neuropathic medications. So a lot of people are very familiar with gabapentin, mm -hmm. uh, more kind of newer version or sister medication to gabapentin would be Lyrica. So we'll use those um, sometimes some of the antidepressants too can work for neuropathic or nerve pain as well. And then muscle relaxants can be helpful short-term too. Sure. Uh, and what about the length of time for those uh, neuropathic medications? Is it tend to be a fairly long time that you're on those? 
there are people that are on on them chronically. That's what um, I said. Yeah. Yeah, but sometimes if it's more of an acute issue and and we're working through doing the the physical therapy, maybe some injections, sometimes we'll try those medications for three months or so, and then slowly try to take people off and, and see if they tolerate being off of them. If they don't, we can kind of titrate them back up and then try again, you know, in another couple months. So they don't have to be a chronic medication. Once you start them, um, it's not something you're going to have to be on the rest of your life, unless that seems to be what, what works, what gives you the pain relief you need. So again, we got traction, we got TENS. Um, I, I imagine there's some probably manual therapy with that too, like myofascial release and, and all that. Yep. Uh, also applied. So, and always again, posture. I mean, posture. So, yeah. So, are you trying to tell me something? No, 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 no. I'm not really, I'm, <laughs> I'm the worst one, one at it. So, um, <laughs> anything else that you do want to talk about as far as uh, neck pain or cervical pain? I, I think one of the things to, to point out is, you know, if you're getting weakness in your arms, um, numbness, tingling, things that have been going on, you, you can't seek treatment too soon. Having, you know, and it, that's the same that goes with the whiplash injury that we were talking about. Having someone get their, their eyes on you, whether it's a physical therapist or a physician or a PA, you know, to really get you at where's your baseline at? Do you have any strength deficits or anything like that to get treatment moving? Because, you know, a, a disc herniation that injures a nerve that goes, you know, untreated for four to six weeks and you still have weakness, you know, it's not necessarily a hundred percent that you can get that strength back. Um, so, if, if you ever feel like anything is, is wrong or, um, need something checked out, it's never too soon. Yeah. And upon that excellent advice, I think we'll call it to an end, bring it to an end here. Uh, I really appreciate you coming by again, Cynthia, and, <laughs> and hopefully we'll see you maybe and Dr. Ekstrom again soon. And yeah, so yeah, we, we appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Thanks for taking the time.